invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 21, continuing we preach through Galatians this summer and just kind of taking some practical scriptures to end our summer with, and this one I've entitled Restored. Have you ever had a relationship with somebody that got strained, maybe it got broken, and after that you were a little uncomfortable to be around that person? You, you kind of wonder, what's it going to be like the next time that I'm around them? had breakfast with a friend this past Friday, and he talked about a friend of his that he had, lo- he had loaned a bunch of money to. He had actually loaned $1,000 to this guy, and he said, you know, it's interesting. I used to either talk to this guy on the phone or he texted me every day. He said, since I loaned him the money a little over a week ago, I haven't heard from him. <laughs> and I said, well, that's not unusual because now the guy's going to be very uncomfortable to be around you until he pays you back. You take that and put that into the spiritual context of John 21 and what was going on in the disciples' lives and what we see, the encounter that they had with Christ, you understand they felt like they had crossed the line. Jesus had prophesied on the night that he would be betrayed, the night that he is arrested, betrayed, tried right before he's crucified. He told the disciples, you will all fall away because of me on my account. You're all going to fall away. And we kind of miss that because all we really pick up on is Peter, proud Peter, poked his chest out and said, uh-uh, if all of these do, you can count on me. Even if it costs me my life, I will not betray you. You remember what Jesus said, Peter, tonight before the rooster crows in the morning, you're going to betray me not one time but three times. So that's what's happened. That's the historical context that we get to chapter 21 of John. And we see this encounter now that Jesus has with his disciples. The other thing you need to know is they're back in the region of the Galilee. In fact, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, told the disciples what was about to happen. They didn't get it. They didn't understand what was about to happen. It was going to rock their world. But he told them, I'm going to rise from the dead. So go ahead of me to Galilee. Well, did the disciples go ahead of him to Galilee? Eventually. (laughs) But they didn't immediately. In fact, Jesus appears to them in the upper room the day he rises from the dead. A week later, they're still there. So this is about two weeks, maybe even more than two weeks, after the resurrection of Christ. And you say, well, how do you figure that? Well, if you're in Jerusalem seven or now eight days after the crucifixion and you've got to get back to Galilee, it takes about a week to walk there. And so it's about 14 or 15 days After the resurrection of Christ, we get to this passage, and let me begin reading in verse 1, chapter 21 of John. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will also go with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. 
So they cast, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. Is that little issue with the microphone bothering y'all? We've replaced the pack. We practiced this morning. It doesn't make that until y'all all show up. So it's not y'all okay? It's bothering me. So the first point is just the setting of the restoration. Okay? So the setting of the restoration is they're on the banks of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is on the beach. The disciples are out in the boat. They had been fishing all night long. Now, just in case you're wondering, what did these people do for a living before they followed Christ? They were fishermen. And their practice was, late at night, you'd go fish, you'd fish all night long. It was very unusual for them not to catch something. Had this ever happened before? Yep. Back in Luke chapter 5, they had fished all night, had caught nothing. They'd never met Jesus. He stands on the shore and says a similar thing, and that is, you didn't catch anything, did you? I just got to tell you, if you're a fisherman, you really don't want people asking you that question. I remember going rafting on the Nantahala River the first time I ever rafted. And our rafting guy said, now listen, you're going to see people fishing along the river. Please do not say, did you catch anything? <laughs> I guess if you did catch something, you can pull a string up. Look at that. But maybe these guys realize these guys never catch anything, and please don't rub it in. So Jesus is standing on the shore Disciples have fished all night. They are fishermen. They literally are professional fishermen. That's what they did for a living. They were used to that. Back in Luke chapter 5, it says, Jesus said, cast your net again. They had already come into shore at this point. And so they reluctantly said, okay. They go back out, and they get a catch that's so bad that they had to bring another boat up, and both of those boats are about to sink by the weight of the fish. And so when Jesus appears to them on the shore and says to them, you had not caught anything, have you? They said, no. And then he says, children. He said, children, you didn't, you didn't caught anything. Cast your net on the right side of the boat. Now, do you think maybe some of these guys are going, we're professional fishermen. The fish don't know what side of the boat we're casting on. What difference is it going to make if we've cast it on the left side all night long? Now, all of a sudden, you said, why don't you try the other side of the boat? Reminded me, a friend of mine, his parents owned this lake house, and we used to go out there and, and fish. And we took this guy with us. This guy had never fished in his life. So we're fishing, three of us in a boat. Me and Tim were casting our, our line over under trees and right close to the bank because we'd fished there before. He, this guy's just taking it and seeing how far to the middle of the lake he can throw it. And he's wondering, why are y'all catching fish and I'm not catching fish? So I said, well, did you wash your worm off before you put it on the hook? He said, no, what do you mean? I said, well, you don't think that fish wants to eat a dirty worm? Would you eat a dirty worm? So here he goes. He starts washing it off, putting it on the hook, and then seeing how far he can throw it. I was like, no. Problem is, you might want to fish on the other side of the boat. Well, that's not the case here. These are professional fishermen. They, they knew the fish didn't know that they were on the wrong side of the boat or the left or right side of the boat. But what happens now after they cast the net on the right side of the boat? They catch so many fish, they can't get it in the boat. Now, there's seven disciples. Five of them are named. By this time, how many disciples were there total? There were 12. 
We've lost Judas. There's 11. So four of them are slept in that day. We don't know. They weren't with them. But there's seven out there, and they can't. These men who are used to catching fish cannot even get the net into the boat. So they start coming toward the shore. Because John says, isn't it interesting, John always refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's the one that wrote this book, and so he never refers to him. He never said, I told Peter. <laughs> he just always refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. You don't see that distinction in Matthew, Mark, or Luke's gospel, but in John you do because he's talking about himself, and I think he doesn't want to say his name, so he just said the disciple whom Jesus loved. He says, it's got to be, that's the Lord. What does Peter do? Peter puts on his outer garment because he was stripped for work, jumps into the water, and starts swimming as fast as he can to shore. It's interesting. John was always quicker to perceive. We see that other places in Scripture. Peter was always the first to act. And sometimes Peter's actions weren't good. Sometimes Peter's words. He just said things. And if you were standing there with him, you'd probably go, oh, man, I wouldn't have said that. But that's Peter. He jumps in. Why do you think Peter does that? Why do you think they're, they're 100 yards from shore at this point? Why do you think he can't wait to get to the shore? Folks, I think it's because of that word, restored. Peter, more than anything else, realized, I messed up. I betrayed Christ. Here he is risen from the dead. I want so desperately to be restored to Christ. And here's the issue. Had Jesus moved? No. Who moved? Peter did. And so Peter, for however many days this was, even though he's seen him in the upper room a couple of times, even Scripture indicates that Jesus had appeared to Peter. Apparently, Peter still didn't feel like the restoration had taken place, and that's fleshed out a little bit more in the rest of the passage. But Peter's thinking, I'm not waiting to get this boat. I don't even care about these fish anymore. I'm jumping in, and I'm swimming as fast as I can to Jesus. And so the rest of them finally make it to shore about 100 yards. So then we see... The general restoration. Keep in mind, yes, Peter needed to be restored, but really and truly the other disciples, these other six men, had also failed. They had also fled the scene. They had also been afraid they're going to be next. Jesus said, all of you are going to fall away on account of me. In fact, that's actually a fulfillment of a prophecy from Zechariah. And so what do they see when they get on the shore? They see a charcoal fire already laid already burning, and fish are placed on it, and bread. A couple of things you need to see there. Let me read the Scripture. Verses 9 through 14. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid, and fish placed on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So they get out on shore at the beach. Jesus has already been there ahead of him. He's already started this charcoal fire. And the significance of the charcoal fire is it's only mentioned one other time in the New Testament. Do you remember the time, or do you know, or where the other time the word charcoal is mentioned in the New Testament? It's where they were warming themselves outside 
of the high priest's house, or actually the uh, governor's house, is where Peter denied Christ. So the significance of the charcoal fire for Peter, probably when he smelled it and saw it, he thought, man, that brings back memories because the last time I was standing beside a charcoal fire, I was asked, aren't you one of his followers? And he said, no, I don't even know the guy. But there's already fish on the fire. Where did that come from? In fact, the word here is different than the word for the 153 fish. It's little fish. In fact, it was fish that could be used as a garnish. It's probably dried fish. Where did Jesus get the fish? Did he go to the store that morning? Had he been doing some fishing himself? We don't have an answer to that. But he also could have just brought them with him and created them right there. So there's fish and bread. I don't know if the disciples, if I'm one of the disciples, that's probably a question I'm going, Jesus, where did you get the fish? They don't ask that question. They don't even ask, who are you? It said nobody had the courage to say, who are you? Because they knew who it was. It was Jesus. And I just want to say, after Jesus is risen from the dead, apparently there's something different about his appearance. Because he, number one, he has to manifest himself. He has to reveal who he is. And here's a question to percolate over lunch today. We see him several times for 40 days. Up at this point, he's already appeared to the women in the garden. He's appeared to the disciples twice in the upper room. He's appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus. What's he been doing the rest of the time? You ever thought about that? I kind of got my own speculation. I think he's in heaven. I don't think he's here hiding out. I don't think he's hiding somewhere for 40 days on earth. But he had a reason to manifest himself, and so he does that. This time it's on the, the banks of the Sea of Galilee. So when he gets there, the bread's already ready, there's fish already ready. But then he said, bring some of the fish you've caught and add them to the meal. I think there's even elements of restoration in that. I think the fact that Jesus is saying, hey, participate. I've called you to be fishers of men. This morning you've been fishers of fish. Bring some of those fish because we're okay with each other. Restoration is taking place. Bring something to the table. He never asked for that before, had he? I mean, yeah, he had the five loaves and two fishes from the little boy, but he fed 5,000 plus with that, right? So Jesus says, bring some of the fish you've caught. And so they drugged, they didn't, Simon Peter. Which makes you think, now wait a minute, seven guys couldn't get the net into the boat. Now that the boat's close enough to shore, Simon goes by himself and brings the net to shore. 153 fish in the net. Why do they tell us 153 fish? There's whole sermons that have been preached on the significance of the number 153. One, one that I read was this. If you take the number of the disciples squared and the number of the Holy Spirit squared, you get 153. That's what happens when you start with a number and try to figure significance out. Others have said, well, it was how many fish there were. That's the, all the types of fishes in the world. At that time, there's 153, and it was kind of a spiritual indication of that they were going to go out into the world and reach people. I, I think the reason that they said there was 153 is they just wanted us to know there's a lot of fish. And the disciples probably had to count the fish as a part of their profession because they would divvy them up among themselves. They had to know how many fish. They were doing inventory. And they, these were large fish. This is the word ichthus. That's what the fish you put on the back of your car, which is an acrostic for Jesus Christ, Son of God. That's the word ichthus. That's what he says. So these are large fishes. I realize fishes doesn't have to be. These were large fish. 
And so they bring them. And although there were so many, the nets were not torn. So I think there's a miracle of the catch. There's even the miracle of getting these fish to shore because the net should have been torn, but it wasn't. And Jesus says, come have breakfast. You've been fishing all night. Didn't catch anything. Now all of a sudden in one cast you've caught, you've caught 153 fish. Come have breakfast. Jesus is about to feed these disciples who he dearly loved. He loved enough to die on the cross for them. And he's not mad at them. He's actually got a purpose for them. He's got a ministry that he's calling them to. So he says, come have breakfast. And Jesus took the bread and gave it to them. Do you think that reminded them of anything? It certainly could have reminded them of feeding the 5,000, but I think it probably reminded them a couple of weeks earlier when while they're having the Passover meal, they, he took the bread, broke it, and gave it to him, and said, this is my body, broken, given for you. Eat. And then he said he took the fish likewise. I've often thought, why didn't we, you know, we took the Lord's Supper, and we've kind of instituted that in the church. I think any time we send missionaries out, we ought to have a fish fry and have bread hush puppies, and fish, and break them and reenact this. But that didn't make it into what we do in Scripture, but that's okay. So he took the fish likewise, and it says this is now the third time that he was manifested to his disciples. First time was in the upper room. A week later, the second time was in the upper room because Thomas wasn't there the first time. You know the story. But he's also, he appeared first to the women. Then he appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus. So this is the third time that he's appeared to them. And keep in mind, when Peter said, let's go fishing, they were probably in the spot Jesus told them to meet him, and he got tired of waiting. Peter was impatient. And some people think the reason Peter said, let's go fishing, is he had given up totally on Christ and said, I'm going back to what I used to do. I don't think that. I think Peter was just tired of waiting and thought, got to have something to eat, got to have some income, let's go fishing. We're still waiting on Jesus because he told us to wait on him. But they went fishing. So I think in a general sense, there's restoration that takes place with all the disciples around breakfast, around a meal. In case you're wondering, why do we eat every time we go to church? Most churches have the three F's, food, fun, and fellowship. Well, right here, Jesus fed them. But there's an individual restoration. And let's look at this as we close the last three verses we'll look at this morning. Verses 15, 16, and 17. So, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. Individual restoration. Peter and Jesus have a conversation. Whether the other disciples overheard this, whether this is right around the breakfast or not, not sure because the next passage it says, they're walking and the one who followed them, which was John. So it could be that Jesus has gotten up from the breakfast and this is an individual conversation. Or it could be a conversation he had in front of the rest of the disciples. I don't know. But he calls him Simon. Isn't that interesting? 
Jesus had given Peter the name Peter. No longer do I call you Simon, I'm calling you Peter, which is a piece of the rock. But Peter wasn't acting very rock-like at this moment, so Jesus referred to him as Simon. I think because he had, was acting like his former self, Jesus called him by his former name. He says, do you love me? And it's important that we catch the significance of the words love here. There are several words in the Greek language for love. The two most used in Scripture are agape, which is unconditional love, love like God loves. And then there's a love more of affection, and that is phileo, and that is the love, brotherly love, a tenderness of affection. So Jesus says first, Peter, do you love me? Then he also says, do you love me more than these? What are the these? Well, some scholars think he's walking him by the fishing nets and the boats and saying, Peter, this is your former life. Do you love me more than these? I don't think that's what he's talking about. Now, that's just my opinion. There's other people I respect greatly who think that's what he's talking about. I think he's hearkening back to two weeks before when Peter said, I love you more than these. These other disciples, you've just told us we're all going to fall away. I'm not going to. I'm comparing myself to the rest of these. They're going to fall away, Jesus. You're right. You pegged them. But I'm not going to. I love you more than they do. And so when Jesus says, do you love me more than these? I think he's talking about the disciples. Do you really love me more than these? And then Peter answers him and says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. The word for know that he uses is the word to see or to know. It's the Greek word ido. And it's important because he changes words here in a minute. But isn't it interesting, too, that, G, that Peter doesn't say, you know that I love you more than these. He ignores that part of the question and simply says, Lord, you know I love you. But he uses the word, you know that I have a tender affection for you. And whether that is that Peter just felt guilty over his sin of turning on Jesus, turning his back and betraying him, and felt, I can't use that word you just used, Jesus, but you know I have strong feelings for you. But Jesus gives him a job. Ten my lambs. And it's interesting, as you notice the progression of this, the task gets a little harder. Jesus uses a word here for little sheep, lamb, my little lambkins. And, and it's interesting, he says, mine. He's talking about, for those immature, new followers of mine, Peter, take care of them. Tend them. Act like a shepherd to them. Tend my lambs. Then he said a second time, do you love me? He uses that word agape again. In other words, do you have an unconditional love for me? Do you have a love that's not about feelings and emotions, but is the kind of love that I have for you? It's the kind of love that God has. And Peter responds similar, similarly, you know that I love you. But he uses that word phileo again, the word, you know that I have a strong affection for you. But then he gives him a second job, shepherd my sheep. Literally tend as a shepherd would, even pamper them. More than feeding them, pamper them. But these are now the grown sheep. So he's told him to shepherd his little ones, but now, Peter, take care of the big ones too. And it gets a little harder because the last thing he's going to tell him to do is feed them or tend them. But he asks him a third time, do you love me? And he changes the word love. Now, Jesus didn't use the word agape anymore. He used the word phileo. He basically says, Peter, do you genuinely, do you really have a tender affection for me? Or is there a brotherly love between us? And it says that Peter was grieved. Literally, he was sad. 
sorrow is caused because he asked him a third time, why do you think he's grieved? Well, it could be that he's asking the third time. It could be because Jesus changed the word. Jesus has been saying, do you have unconditional love? Now he's just saying, do you have affection for me, Peter? And Peter is grieved because he realizes he's, he's lowered the bar a little bit. But he felt like he had to do that for me. I think it's probably more than that. I think it is this. The thing that bothered Peter the most is he had denied Christ three times. He's now having an opportunity three times to profess his love for Christ. And so I think he's grieved because he's thinking back to how he had failed Christ. But Jesus is in the process of restoring him. And he says, you know all things. You know that I love you. He uses a different word for know, the second know. And that's the word of a heart knowledge, to know absolutely. And he says, tend my sheep. The tasks get a little more difficult. It's a little easier to take care of young sheep who are starving to death. It's a little harder to take care of the older sheep. Who it's a little harder to coax them to eat sometimes and to manage them. But the interesting thing is, Jesus has a ministry that he's called Peter to. He hasn't given up on him. He could have said, Peter, do you love me? When Peter says, well, I have a tender affection for you, he could have said, you're fired. Or as Arnold Schwarzenegger put it, you're terminated. <laughs> and if you and I were God, that might have been what we did. But here's the grace that Jesus has demonstrated. Peter, I'm giving you something you don't deserve. I'm giving you forgiveness. Peter, I don't hold it against you anymore. I told you you were going to betray me. So I wasn't caught off guard when you did that. You were. I wasn't. But Peter, I called you to be fishers of men three years ago. And nothing's changed. I'm restoring you to that ministry. And Peter was going to have an incredible ministry and mission after this. Leader in the church. First one you're going to read about in the book of Acts. Standing up for Jesus in the face of possible imprisonment, pain, and even death is Peter. And Peter continue, Jesus continues to give Peter a job. So three thoughts as we close that I want you to think about. How do we apply that to us? Listen, there's times that you're going to feel like I can't even approach God today. I messed up. It's been too long since I've been to church. It's been too long since I've talked to God. And you just feel unworthy. Well, I want to say the same thing to you that I say to other people. Put the stick down you've been beating yourself with. Jesus is ready to restore you. Why? Because he loves you. Jesus is not caught off guard when we mess up, but he wants messing up to be less and less a part of our life. Jesus, God, disciplines those whom he loves. That's, that's really a good word. If you feel like you're just sinning willfully and you're not experiencing the discipline of God, then you need to question whether you're his child or not. Because if you are his child, he will discipline you. But he does it to bring you back, not to push you away. So the first thought is that Jesus always takes the initiative in restoration. Isn't that great? Jesus draws us to himself in faith. But when we mess up, he takes the initiative to forgive us, to remind us that He's already paid the penalty at the cross, you're forgiven. For some of you, that's the word you need to hear this morning. You just need to let that sink in. If you're still beating yourself up over a past sin, you need to receive God's forgiveness. And you might even say, well, preacher, you don't know what I've done. I don't have to know what you've done. 
I know the God who forgives. So put the stick down and receive forgiveness. Second thought, to love Jesus is to care for his lambs and sheep. The, the ministry is not just for Peter. It's not just for your preacher. God's called us to ministry. So take care of the little ones. Take care of the less little ones. God's got a job for you. Ephesians 2 does talk about we're saved by grace. But verse 10 of Ephesians 2 says you are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. God's got something for you to do. Third, Jesus uses us to meet the needs of His people. They're His people. But Jesus uses His people to meet the needs of His people. And one of the things that will keep you from meeting the needs of His people is sensing that somehow there's something between you and God that's not right. If you sense that, I promise you, He didn't move. You did. So come home. Put the stick down. Receive forgiveness. And get back in the ministry that God's called you to. And if you're wondering, well, what is that? It, it probably is not to go to seminary and become a preacher, to go on the mission field. It may not be that. For some of you it is, but for, for many of you it's live for Jesus at school. Live for Jesus at work. Live for Jesus in your home and in your community. And you won't do that if you sense there's a problem between you and God. He's trying right now to restore you. Allow that to happen. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for a message of restoration. Lord, what we see in this passage is so beyond what humans would do. Thank you for that. Lord, apply that to the lives of men and women, young people in 2017. God, thank you that you're a God of restoration. You're a God of forgiveness. You're a God who says, hey, do you, do you love me? And we demonstrate that through service. So thank you for that in Christ's name.